two new boys, Qin Zhong and Bao Yu, were both as beautiful as flowers. The other scholars observed how shrinking and gentle Qin Zhong was, blushing almost before you spoke to him, and timid and bashful as a girl. They saw in Bao Yu one whom nature and habit had made humble and accommodating, in spite of his social position, always willing to defer to others in the interest of harmony. They observed his affectionate disposition and familiar manner of speech, and they could see that the two friends were devoted to each other. Perhaps it is not to be wondered at that these observations should have given rise to certain suspicions in the minds of those ill-bred persons, and that both in school and out of it, all kinds of ugly rumours should have circulated behind their backs. everyone this is rereading the stone i'm your host i'm your host kevin wilson <laughs> i think that's the second time in a row you've called yourself the coast uh, yeah i'm the coast i think it's just thick uh, i'm i'm here with uh will jones oh yeah will how's it going really good yeah very much looking forward to uh to chapter nine which is i think the funniest chapter yeah we were talking before uh recording began this is yeah. This is definitely the funniest chapter so far. Um, I would characterize it as extremely mud. Would you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. If we're talking about uh, clean, pure water and dirty, filthy mud, this is definitely the latter category. Right. I, I think it was chapter two when we first learned of Jabao Yu's childhood uh, philosophy of life, where uh, women are women and girls are made of water. Uh, mm. and boys and men are made of mud uh, and and actually I was going back through the chapters and I was looking for patterns whether like maybe uh, certain chapters would be water chapters certain chapters would be mud or, or clay chapters mm-hmm. uh, and this is what I got so far now granted this is this is sort of nonsense but I, I think it's fun anyway so chapter one water mud Chapter two, just mud. Chapter three, <laughs> water, water meets mud. Chapter four, all mud. Chapter five, water. Chapter six, water and mud. Chapter seven, water, then mud. Chapter eight, plot twist, frozen water. And now we're on chapter nine, pure mud. This is the muddiest chapter. This is water, un- unadulterated filth. Um. Unad- <laughs> exactly. Um so I'm not sure if the, if there's any actual patterns there. I, I was trying to incorporate the cycles of water and mud with my um, uh, Wuxing fascinations. Mm-hmm. 
and I'm not sure if you can really create a unified system or not. Although it, it really is a contrast with the previous chapter. So do you remember what happened in, uh, do you want to do the uh, kind of a review of chapter eight? Why don't I give a quick turn? This is frozen water. So in, in chapter eight, our protagonist, Jia Baoyu, who is a 13 or 14 year old boy, you know, the, the youngest male of this great uh, Chinese family, the, the Jia family. He goes to visit his cousin, Xue Baochai, who is also, she's also one of the two kind of main love interests in the book. Uh, she's recently had a, a spell of, a kind of recurrence of a chronic illness that she suffers from. And so he's just visiting her in the, in the kind of uh, aftermath of that. And while visiting, they discover that they have similar necklaces and inscribed into each of their necklaces is a, is a kind of rhyming couplet. Uh, and the two couplets kind of match in a way that they're, they're sort of parallel uh, then their other cousin uh, Lin Daiyu who's also uh, one of the love interests for uh, Jia Baoyu in the in the story uh, she joins them and they spend the rest of the day together just kind of you know hanging out being uh, young rich people I suppose and um, you know they have some food and some drink and uh, Jia Baoyu's old wet nurse Nanny Li uh, kind of admonishes him for drinking too much uh, and she tries to you know tries to prevent him from having too many cups of wine but you know her her objections are overcome by by kind of one and all and then at the end of the chapter we're introduced to uh, the family of Qin Zhong who is a friend of Bao Yu's uh, he is the younger brother of uh, Qin Shi who is joined to the Jia clan through marriage and her father the father of her and, and uh, Qin Zhong is a man called uh, Qin Bangye, who's a kind of minor official. And we learned that Qin Shi was an adopted child uh, and Qin Zhong was a, his, his biological child. Uh, and we're left with Qin Bangye, the father, fretting over how he is going to pay for his son's school fees. So basically, you know, one of the things that's happened in the story is that uh, Jia Baoyu, our protagonist, and Qin Zhong, his new friend, have decided that they should, you know, go off to school together to, to the to the family school. And in chapter nine, we basically have the story of, of them, the two of them starting at this school uh, uh, and how that plays out. Spoiler, inharmoniously. So where should we begin, do you think? Well, I think this chapter divides quite neatly into two parts. There's, a, there's an initial section with Jia Baoyu saying, you know, farewell to his various kind of family members and, uh, and other members of the household. Uh, before going off to school. And then there's the section actually at school uh, and everything that kind of plays out there. So shall we just kind of knock out the first section? There's a couple of things that I think are, are kind of interesting and worth talking about here. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I also have prepared a few kind of quotations from the secondary literature that I, I, want, to, um, I, I want to discuss. Yeah. Um, I also have a kind of theory that I'm going to present in a little bit, another interesting kind of over-interpretive theory that I, I'm pretty excited about. Good, good. Well, yeah. well so, so, I mean, it starts with um, Baoyu and his, his maid, Aroma, uh, Hua Xiren, um, and he's just waking up and she's sitting on the corner of his bed uh, looking disconsolate. So she's obviously a bit upset about him leaving because the two of them have a, a kind of romantic relationship of sorts. So after he had this this kind of dream sequence in chapter five, which is very explicitly one about sexual awakening, you know, and in which he's given the secret of, of, uh, of how a man and a woman have sex. 
uh, he then decides that he wants to try it out with his with his maid aroma, and you know we've talked about this before. It's, it's kind of slightly weird, uh, but it does seem that you know she's she's uh, amenable to the idea. So so you know, and the result seems to be that their relationship has taken on a more informal tone. Yeah, uh, and this is really evident in this chapter where the dialogue is resembles less that between you know, a master and a servant, which is effectively what's going on here. Mm -hmm. And more that between, I almost got the vibes of mother and son. Did you have a similar reaction? I, I, I think that that's not like completely misguided. Definitely. I can, I can see why you would, why, why it would feel that way. I, you know, for the way it plays out is she says, you know, I've packed all of your stuff up and, you know, right. uh, don't you make sure to study, but don't study too hard. You know, don't sacrifice your health. Uh, sacrifice your health, and I know you're going to have several pages to wait on you. You know, kind of male servants to wait on you. Um, and that's going to be important later in, in a really hilarious scene. You're going to have your pages, you know, attending on you, but they're terrible servants compared to compared to me. You know, they're not going to do anything. You know, they're not going to bring you your you know thick robe to keep you warm or or refill the charcoal in your in your little hand warmer or yeah. anything so you know yes yes uh, <laughs> you know in all i think it's kind of quite touching um yeah i agree mm -hmm. um and it does show like a degree of sort of complexity to their relationship certainly but yeah i i totally agree and then uh he he basically visits a lot of the main characters um hmm. Probably most important, uh, maybe for our purposes, we should really talk about his meeting with uh, his father, yeah. Jia Zhang. Yeah. So we actually really hadn't been introduced to Jia Zhang much before this at all. Right. But, you know, um, we knew he existed and we knew the nature of their relationship, but I don't think we'd actually seen him face to face. He'd been kind of alluded to in earlier chapters. Uh, so in the previous chapter, when... Bao Yu is making his way, you know, from one side of the mansion to the other to go and see uh, Bao Chai. He, one of the things that he's worried about is that along the way he will see his father, and this is something that he doesn't want to happen. You know, he doesn't want to, he doesn't really want to have to see him. And I guess I didn't give this as much thought at the time as perhaps I should have. But having read this section, it's a lot more easy to understand why why he has this very a kind of reluctant attitude to seeing his own father. If you think back to, I think in chapter two, we had uh, Jia Yutsun, who is the, you know, formerly penniless intellectual turn, you know, kind of made good uh, turned, you know, imperial official, uh, who's in a, he's in a tavern having a chat with his friend, Lang Zixing, I think. And they're discussing the Jia clan, you know, on whom we're focusing at the moment. And one of the things that we learn about Jia Baoyu is that because he was born with this mysterious piece of jade in his mouth, I think there was quite a high degree of sort of expectation of great things from him. And when he was still an infant, his father laid out a variety of things around him, you know, items of different sorts with different significance, uh, some perhaps ind indicating education and learning and some indicating kind of like uh, more kind of like play and leisure. Anyway, the, the baby was most interested in, in women's things, in women's objects. And uh, when this happens, the father, Jia Zhong, is, he's kind of disgusted, you know, and he doesn't at that point exactly renounce his son, but he 
certainly kind of loses a lot of the interest perhaps or or you know yeah i guess the interest that he had in him the 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 maybe fascination and we kind of see how that's played out up to this point and that uh that childhood fascination has um has really come into uh fuller fruition Mm -hmm. right and with that uh kind of development i think the father's disgust has only has only grown yeah i think so i think he has real he he just doesn't have that much regard for his own son he doesn't seem to consider him to be worthwhile or interesting as a as a person uh and there's really you know quite a revealing conversation that they have so that's how about we read some of the hawks translation yeah sure would you like to would you like to read i'm gonna start here uh uh, jia jung was in conversation with his literary gentleman. These are the chinko that we talked about in the last yeah, chapter. Yeah, the, the hangers-on. The, yeah, the hanger-on, the, the clip-springers. Yeah. Uh, when, when Bao Yu entered the room and made his salutation. Hearing him announce that he was off to school to resume his studies, Jia Zheng smiled sarcastically. I think you better not use the word studies again in my hearing, unless you want to make me blush for you. In my opinion, you might just as well be off to fool around as before since that is all you seem fit for. At all events, I don't want you here. I find your presence in a place like this contaminating. Uh. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very surprising way, I guess, for a parent to speak to their child. And it marks a very stark contrast with the degree of, I suppose, affection and even kind of spoiling uh, that is extended to Bao Yu by uh, so many other members of the household. For example, his, his grandmother, the grandmother of the kind of matriarch of the household. And you can see this maybe feeding into uh, his um, tendency or uh, predisposition toward uh, female figures. So that maybe there's a kind of feedback loop uh, in, in effect here. When he talks about contamination, he uses this very particular term in, in Chinese, adza, uh, which is a word I'd not really come across before this. It seems to be like a something slightly specific to maybe northern Chinese dialects. But yeah, it conveys a sense of kind of like filth, dirt. Hmm. It's interesting on a number of levels. I think firstly, because it's a very strange thing for him to say to his son, he doesn't really go into why he considers him to be uh, dirty or contaminating. But also it kind of plays into the things that Baoyu had previously said, which, which we touched on earlier, about boys being mud and girls being pure water uh, or, or whatever. Although maybe the inverse, because in his father's eyes, uh, Bao Yu is contaminated because of his uh, admixture with water, in effect. He's not, which is a little bit, I mean, it's it's kind of hard to parse the, the dialectic here, but that does seem to be, because um, as we're about to find out, the father is is extremely um, disappointed, not only that Bao Yu hasn't been studying that much, but also that he's been studying parts of the classics that are less stately and upright and more artistic Mm -hmm. and maybe by implication uh softer and more feminine yeah and so basically at this scene the uh the the quote-unquote literary gentlemen they try to ease the tension and they kind of usher bow you away yeah now it's time for his tutor li guay yeah to get a um maybe to be either beaten or at least to be harshly verbally reprimanded. I, I mean, is is Li Gui his? Are we are we to understand that he's that's his tutor, or that he's just one of the? Yes. Okay. Okay. So I just thought that he was one of the the kind of uh, servants who maybe waited on him uh, and was present at when he was being tutored by others. 
my sense is he is the one of the primary tutors okay. at, at this moment, uh, at okay. least prior to the uh, Bao Yu's entrance yeah. into the clan school, the, the Jia clan school. Okay. And so here is uh, Jia Zheng reprimanding uh, Li Gui. He says, you've attended Bao Yu during all his lessons in the past. What precisely has he been doing? Stuffing his head with worthless nonsense and acquiring a fine new stock of navish tricks. Yeah. I shouldn't wonder. Wait until I have a little time to spare. I'll have your hide off first and then settle accounts with that good-for-nothing son of mine. At this point, Li Gui re responds, Master Bao, has read the first three books of the poetry classic. Up to the part that goes, Hear the happy bleeding deer grousing in the vagrant meads. Yeah. That's the truth, sir. I wouldn't tell a lie. And at this point, everyone starts... Uh, kind of erupts into laughter yeah. because he has severely butchered a, a famous line from the Shujing. Yeah, so 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 just you know, for to kind of give some background context. I mean, the the Shujing, the the classic, the poetry classic, as it is, is you know definitely part of the the canon of classical Chinese texts, and it is quite interesting that it's considered in some way kind of lower or less worthy here because I guess it tells you something about the the kind of hierarchy that people had in their minds about these and, and the way that they were perceived is certainly a hierarchy that I don't think I really knew existed. Okay, so I, I have a... Um, the secondary literature I found speaks precisely to this issue mm -hmm. because, um, well, basically, uh, Jia Zheng says that, you know, he should be reading the the four books, which we mentioned in the past, yeah. right? The, the the Analects of Confucius, so that's the uh, Lun Yu, the, mm. the, 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 the Mencius, the Mengzi, the Zhongyong, which is sometimes known as the doctrine of the mean or kind of the middle way, and the great learning or Dashia. One thing that's going on here is that that's the Sushu, but there's also this expression, the four books and the five classics. Right. And so the book of poetry is part of the five classics. Yeah. And so the question is whether this portrayal of, of Jia Zheng is actually meant to speak to his, his limited knowledge actually of the classics. Uh, and, and so I have a really good quote from, I found some good quotations, actually from the book Rereading the Stone. So we uh, we were kind of inspired by the name of this book when naming the podcast. And so now we're actually on Rereading the Stone. We are rereading, rereading the stone. Yep. Uh, so it's not, I'm quoting from uh, Anthony Yu, who writes, the father's denunciation of the poetry classic betrays his utter carelessness, if not his ignorance about their requisite texts in Bao Yu's curriculum. The emphasis on the four books is not wrong, but Jia Zheng should have remembered that the volume of ancient poetry had also attained the status of a classic, indeed long before his time and less before the time of the novelistic setting. Large portions of the work have been so thoroughly assimilated through allegorical exegesis into the Confucian discourse on statecraft and ethics that the anthology's examination has always been considered a part of the test devoted to ascertaining the meaning of the classics, Jing Yi. If Bao Yu were to succeed in the examinations, in short, he had little choice but to master much of this book's content. Yeah. The irrationality of Jia Zheng's precipitous outburst is further underscored by a very poetic text slightly misquoted by the unwitting servant, mm -hmm. right? Which I, which I just read a moment ago. This song, heading a section of the anthology titled Calling Deer, mm -hmm. uh, Lu Ming, is in fact the sung text that accompanies the banquet given for the successful candidates in the triennial provincial examination. Hence, it's called the Banquet of the Calling Deer. Interesting. 
Had his been a more alert and agile intelligence, the father could perhaps have turned the servant's citation into an occasion to exhort his son to strive for the honor associated with the poetic lines. As it is, his dim-witted impetuosity cannot be more bitingly displayed by the novelist. Okay, so that is that's something which uh, you know uh, your ordinary reader could never have been expected to know. But I guess it kind of demonstrates how. Uh, I guess the level of erudition of the writer and the kind of multiple layers of of meaning here. It, right. It's interesting. So I did a little bit of reading in the background of this, and this idea of the the four books, Su uh, Shu, being kind of the most fundamental texts, is a kind of later development. It seems you know this is so. There's something which in English is called Neo Confucianism, but I think is known as uh, Song Ming Li Xue in in Chinese. So. Uh, Song Ming refers to the Song and Ming dynasties. Um, so that's about the 10th to 12th, 12th century, give or take, and then the 14th to the 17th centuries. Um, so relatively modern within the, the scope of Chinese history. And in two figures in particular, Zhu Xi, who was in the Song dynasty, and um, Wang Yangming, who's uh, in the Ming dynasty. And and so this like formalizing of a variety of different texts into a kind of unified canon is a kind is a sort of later thing. So it wasn't determined at the time that they were written, or even for a while afterwards that they were going to be the most important. But a thousand years later or more afterwards, so I think there's that to reflect on. Also, this is you know, this is not something which has always been the the kind of state of uh, affairs, but it's sort of later revisionism, I suppose. And as you touch on, you know, yeah, it it, it kind of reflects the the ignorance and sort of pomposity of Bao Yu's father, Jia Zheng. I think so, yeah. Again, it would be hard to make it through the four books without at least a passing understanding of uh, the Book of Poetry. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's mentioned, you know, very highly, especially in the Analects. Um, but I, I think it all those works. Yeah. Do we, do we want to talk about the misquoted poem at all? I, I think actually this is somewhere where um, Hawks does, I think, a good a good job of it. So yeah, he translates it as "hear the happy bleeding deer, grousing in the vagrant meads." And I think with the word "bleeding," for example, he's punning on the word "bleating." So the poem is all about deers crying out, calling out, you know, in in just you know, in the ordinary way that animals uh, call, you know, bleat. And so he's making in English the type of kind of near homophony between bleeding and bleating that exists in in the in the in the misquoted chinese one of the things that is kind of interesting to me about it is that there are, in the written form you can see it's clearly not the same poem you know if you if you bring the two up side by side but actually when spoken aloud certainly in modern mandarin m- much of the sound would be very similar uh, particularly the first line so the original is yo yo lu ming so mm. Lu Ming means the the deer cry out, and Yo Yo is a is an onomatopoeia basically. Yeah. A- and when Li Gui is speaking, he uses a different character, but the pronunciation is exactly the same. It's Yo first tone. So, although it, when it's written down, you can see it's different. When it would ha- had it been spoken aloud, there would have been no way to determine that it that it was not the same character. So this, there's there's a sort of strange there's a sort of conceit that we can somehow understand that the characters are different in League Way's head, almost, even though when said aloud that they they sound exactly the same. That is kind of a, a difficult point. It's more obvious the second half uh, where he, 
his rendering is clearly exactly is, yeah is more obviously yeah yeah so in the original it's divergent it's yeah zhiping and his one is he fuping so i mean it's it's right. uh the original is eating the the wild ping which is i think translated as celery but essentially you know it's a some kind of greenery in the fields and um he trans he he renders it as uh yeah fuping which is the lotus leaves float or kind of float by um which is obviously completely different i suppose it's something like that yeah there is one other bit here that uh in this dialogue which i think is kind of worth commenting on it's just a point about uh etiquette and class so the way that li gui uh this the 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 man who's misrendered this poem the way that he refers to himself is xiaoda which is essentially little small you know and this isn't carried in the hawks translation he just says that's the truth sir i wouldn't tell a lie and the chinese is xiaoda bugan sa huang so small one would not dare to lie literally uh, and and that's his way of referring to himself as kind of the, the little one the small one and there's a fair amount of that yeah it's it's much stronger in the original it's basically a diminutive third person yeah exactly i think it's just you know it's it's an interesting point to pick up on which is just that it, honestly if you did render that literally into english or even aimed in that direction uh, it would sound absurd because i don't think there's the same degree of self diminution that exists in the way that i suppose servants would have spoken to their masters in in a comparable context i'm trying to look in in the text to get a sense for who he sees in what order i want to talk a little bit about he very quickly goes to see lin dayu i think that's immediately after seeing his father is that correct uh, it's the last thing that he does and actually i would just point out it initially seems like a quick visit but they actually end up chatting for quite a while it's the kind of the last thing that he does he's almost on his way out the door and then he goes oh i've not gone and said goodbye to lin dayu i should go and see her and he in the Hawks translation, it reads, he found her by the window, making herself up at the mirror. And I'm always struck by how iconic their interactions are. And I was reflecting on this, this moment where she is, uh, I think very iconically, in front of a mirror, applying makeup, it seems. And it occurred to me, if we want to get really uh, into like over-interpretation mode for a second... Uh, I've been thinking a lot about the name uh, Lin Dayu, okay, and her her interaction with Bao Yu, and we know Dayu to mean black jade, but we also know black to be associated with water. And I was thinking about again, we have this theory of men being made of mud, women being made of water, and we've also had the image of water as a reflective surface, mm-hmm. and so this it seems very. Uh, this moment feels, I think, so special because it's almost as if, if we return to the idea of a rebus, she's acting out her name. She, it's, it's almost like Mrs. Lin is is die in front of the U. Like maybe maybe the U is herself in the mirror, uh, and so it's Lin reflects U. Or it's, do you have a do you have a sense for what I'm getting at there? I, I or, do a bit, yeah. So there's like a. The way that she's depicted in this scene is uh, a visual representation of the meaning of her own name, somehow. Maybe. Almost similar to the some of the uh, material from Chapter 5, when we had the dream 
uh, representations. And there she was, a, the jade belt, uh, hanging from a, a tree branch. Is, is this you? Uh, is this you being Wu Xing pilled again, or is it? This could be characterized as a kind of Wu Xing pill, yeah. And so I was thinking about that in the general context of what's going to happen later in the chapter, where we really descend into the mud and people become less everyone involved is dramatically less reflective maybe with with maybe the exception of um compared to the other boys and men in the educational setting uh Bao Yu and Qin Zhong and their their prospective lovers that we're going to meet in, in a moment there's a lot of really coarse unreflective behavior and so I was kind of thinking about that yeah where that really adds when we first heard the theory of you know the the different the different elements, it, it seemed uh, foolish, and, and I think even Lung Zixing laughed at it. But actually, it's it really does seem to be a kind of something to reflect upon. Yeah. Maybe. Well, well, just one thing I suppose that kind of strikes me about this is that she's I don't know she initially seems very rather cold with him. Mm. So it's she. I mean, you you mentioned that she's sitting before her her mirror doing her makeup, but she's by the window doing her makeup. You know, she's she's sitting at a mirror, but right next to the window. And and I kind of imagine this as her having been sitting by the window, watching to see if he would come and say goodbye before going off to school, and being rather put out that he hadn't come round, uh, and then seeing that he was approaching. You know turning away and, and pretending to be doing her makeup in the mirror kind of thing. So, so that's an interesting interpretation. Yeah. I, I interpreted it as like a deliberately affected distance. Yes. And I, I mean, when, when he says that he's going off to school, she says in the, in the Hawks translation, her answer to his announcement that he was going, he was off to begin school was smiling, but perfunctory. Good. I wish you every success. I'm sorry I can't see you off. And I mean, this kind of mirror is fairly closely what's in the in the Chinese. But if anything, it's even more blunt. So she doesn't say, I'm sorry I can't see you off. She just says, So I can't see you off. There's, no, there's not even any kind of sorry. And she offers him, uh, yeah, she says something along the lines of, I wish you every success. She, she uses this phrase, uh, which is to pluck the Osmanthus branch in the Toad Palace which is a, the type of idiom which does not translate well from, from Chinese to English. But what it literally means is, you know, to pluck the... It's to succeed in, 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 your, uh, in the imperial examinations, essentially. Right. The, the Toad Palace is the moon. Is it? I see. Um, and the idea is you, you have to go all the way up there, and uh, it, it's, it's signifying a very difficult um, task. Yeah. And the idea of there being... Uh, Osmanthus branches up on the moon is connected with um, mythology. I was actually I looked through the records for uh, references to Toad, to Changong to Toad Palace, mm -hmm. and there's a fair number of Tong poems about you know taking the examinations that all reference both the Toad Palace and these um, Guihua. Yeah, Osmanthus branches. Yeah. It was actually it was pretty interesting uh, to find these really old poems that use these these images. Um, like essentially, what this struck me as though is uh, a kind of tired old, old phrase. You know, it's uh, 
the reason that her response, the reason why her response seems so kind of perfunctory to me is because she's, she's not saying something necessarily from, she, she's relying on, on a kind of a rather overused old idiom to wish him success. I mean, it's a bit like break a leg in English. Not, not exactly, but you know, it's something, I guess, well-established, fairly commonly used. And it doesn't convey yes. much originality or thought on the part of the person using it. And so maybe very much intentionally. So it's the same. This is actually what I find very endearing about her character. It's really interesting to see someone who is so obviously conflicted, yeah. but who doesn't have the ability to who like who masks that conflict, but does so in a way that is wholly unconvincing. I think that's kind of part of her charm yeah i don't know if that's my personal reaction or if that's a general a, a consensus view. no i would tend to agree i would um, tend to agree um but there's just then one final part at the end of this section where lin dai asks if he's not going to go and say goodbye to xue bao chai his other cousin and as i mentioned earlier kind of the third corner of this love triangle and he just smiles and says nothing and goes off to school and so what are we supposed to understand of that because there's in the preceding passage there's nothing there's no mention of her so we we, right. we we don't know whether he's he's gone and said goodbye to her is he letting her know that somehow she is the special one that he cares about and he's only going to say goodbye to her and not to Balchai, or does it disguise some other meaning that we haven't been kind of uh informed of yet i would tend toward the latter interpretation my sense is that she received that information with a certain uh kind of enthusiasm let's say ah. especially after just previously uh she had gotten the sense that he had visited bao chai but not her or had failed to bring her along for his visit to bao chai when she was sick okay so maybe this is a, a kind of balancing yeah. omission yep he's showing he's he's favoring dayu uh instead of bao chai mm -hmm. okay so that 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 really is the first section, and then okay, let's go to school. That, yeah, let's go to school. Let's go to school. So this is, uh, I mean, this is a kind of fascinating section to me because it's a it's a look inside ordinary school life for, I guess, for boys who were well enough, well off enough to attend school in 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 China at the time, uh, and what that would have been like. To be quite honest with you, <laughs> it reminds me of things that I've heard from other people about what. English boarding school would be like, <laughs> you know, um, lots of very kind of unmanageable, unruly boys misbehaving. And as we will see, a kind of constant undercurrent of uh, sort of homoeroticism. Although in this case, it definitely is beyond homoeroticism or even, you know, homoerotic rituals to the point where it almost seems at times that like homosexual activity is actively incorporated into the whole structure of the thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you're right. It's, it's much more than just an undercurrent. I mean, it's kind of made it extremely clear that uh, multiple different boys are having sex with each other. The boarding school parallel is interesting because this organization, the, the Jack clan school is also a private institution. Um, although it might feel almost like a, almost like a, one-room schoolhouse, yep. it is very much associated not with the state per se, but with the Jack clan as a kind of social 
organization. Yes. And so I have a nice quote here to read. So the Jack clan was situated at no great distance from the Rongul house. It was a charitable foundation, which had been established many years previously by the founder of the family and was designed for the sons and younger brothers of those members of the clan who could not afford to pay for private tuition. All members of the clan holding official posts were expected to contribute towards its expenses and members of advanced years and known integrity were chosen to be its masters. As soon as Bao Yu and Qin Zhong arrived, they were introduced to the other students and then set to work at once on their lessons. Mm -hmm. And so actually, this school isn't necessarily intended for Bao Yu in that Bao Yu is one of the most, one of its most wealthy members. It's actually kind of a pretense for for him and Qin Zhong to be together. Because we've learned actually lately that, you know, the two of them have been I've gotten closer and closer, become more and more inseparable. Mm-hmm. They're speaking to each other on familiar terms, not using the hierarchical uh, familial designations that are um, otherwise expected given the difference in social rank between uh, Bao Yu and, uh, and Qin Zhong, who's much poorer and of lower uh, social status. Yeah. That kind of sets the scene and gives you a sense for what's going to happen and the the rights and privileges that uh Bao Yu has, and that Qin Zhong enjoys somewhat on account of his, yeah. uh, at his pleasure. friendship yeah. with, with Bao Yu. There, there, there's one thing just before we kind of dive in, which I think is worth mentioning. You mentioned that despite, because of their, their difference in class and because of their respective familial relationships, technically the relationship between Bao Yu and Qin Zhong is that of uncle and nephew. But because of their similar age and their friendship, Bao Yu kind of insists that they refer to one another as though they were social equals. And so he uses um, Xin Zhong's name. But the specific name that he uses is something in Chinese that's called his Biao Zi, which is kind of, it's his, his, uh, his scholarly name. Mm-hmm. His style name. His style maybe. name, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So yeah. I think we may have talked about this briefly before, but this is one of the things that's often quite baffling when you visit, say, the Wikipedia page of a important Chinese historical figure, because it will say, you know, so-and-so, style name, blah, other name, blah, other name, blah. And you'll be like, why does this person have three or four different names? This is, this is so kind of confusing. But this is a very common thing for, for educated, uh, educated people in, in China at the time, right, was to have a, a name that you were born with, but then to have a, a style name, exactly a kind of school name that you were addressed by what people who knew you sufficiently well people of a, a certain social class is is that kind of correct that i think is an accurate characterization i think we might have discussed this in the context of bao yu gave daiyu a a style uh, name. yeah of course of course uh frowner, uh, frowner yeah, the, the Hawks translation. yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it just i thought it was worth mentioning quickly that in this case qin zhong's name is jing qing which is a very very peculiar name Jing is literally a, uh, I think it's a whale. Uh, it's, it's, it's a type of fish. And yeah, I believe it's, uh, I think the fish that it is, is well, a, a whale is technically not a fish, but you know, a aquatic creature. Um, and uh, Qing is the same Qing as from uh, Ke Qing, the, the name by which the fairy in Bao Yu's uh, dream is known. Uh, and also the same name that, that, uh, Qin Shi, his his aunt and Qin Zhong's sister, uh, is is kind of nicknamed. Right. 
my sense is that these names are meant to be uh, complementary. We've seen before the the question of the the Chun sisters, and so I wonder if there's something similar going on between Kuching and Jingqing, where they have they've been given complementary names, uh, possibly uh, on account of the names of ancestors or some other kind of system. Quite possibly, yeah. Quite possibly. That that's my I, understanding. I think that sounds right. Um, I I was just a bit perplexed by it. Um, but but you're right. There's the sense of parallel with naming conventions among siblings, um, where they each incorporate right. one character the same. And it is the same the same Ching. Yep. Uh, which again could be a reference to Ching as an emotion. Yeah. Uh, for the author showing us that both of these, uh, also the, the name uh, Qin Zhong sounds a lot like Qing Zhong, yeah. as in meaning someone who an emotional person. Yeah. Uh, a passionate person, and so I, I do believe that's the author's possible intention. Yeah. So we begin with uh, their closeness, that that the closeness between uh, Bao Yu and Qian Zhong, giving rise to rumors about them. And at first, these rumors are, are just the, the nature of these rumors are just hints that. But obviously, we are to understand that the rumor is that they're a gay couple. Um, but there's some quite good wording in here describing them and, and kind of hinting in that direction. So they're described as, in Chinese, uh, So having the, the same appearance as flowers, have, like being, you know, like flowers in their appearance. In the hawks, as beautiful as flowers. And I mean, there are, yeah, a lot of, there's a lot of terminology describing, you know, you know, kind of both uh, how how they um, how they both were. One of the best ones I think of Qin Zhong is that it uses the phrase "wei yu xian hong," which means could not speak or did not speak without first becoming red. So you know, like you can completely imagine this kind of person. You know, there are people who are so kind of bashful and awkward that they never say anything without first blushing furiously because I, I suppose of of kind of anxiety or uncertainty about about. Or, or kind of a lack of confidence in what they're saying. Mm -hmm. In the Hawks translation, it says, uh, yeah, timid and bashful as a girl. I, I guess that's the, to return to the flower image, we tend to associate flowers with women. But in this case, it, it is, they are kind of in this space because they are um, softer, more gentle constitutions. Yeah. Um, that is kind of a distance from the more mechanical elements of masculinity and it's a source of on one hand uh, appeal to the other boys but also uh, of aversion you could maybe say they're in the liminal space between men and women in this ideological sense and this liminality produces a complex mix of attraction and uh, repulsion mm -hmm. That's that's how I would if maybe theorize uh, yeah. what's going yeah, on here. So. so there's a lot. Of, it, it is a really interesting description, and and there being flowers again reminds me again of Bao Yu's uh, connection with Dai Yu as the uh, the crimson rose, yeah, or the, the the crimson pearl, right? And that's just how she's looking in the mirror and she's seeing herself, but he's seeing himself in her. And, and maybe vice versa. And that's 
the um, the dynamic that the fire that keeps their uh, attraction uh, burning, if you will. So having had this description of um, uh, Qianzhong and Baoyu as being very close, but also being both described in these rather, I would just say that they're they're not expressly masculine terms. You know, they they they're. Uh, deferential and kind of timid, maybe humble. Yeah, this this apparently accommodating. Yeah, this gives rise to this uh, to these these rumors of homosexuality. But then in the subsequent paragraph, it goes on to to make this expressly clear. So we we're reminded once again of the character Xuepan, who is the older brother of Xuebao Chai, Jia Baoyu's cousin, who is one of his love interests. Who this character Xuepan, he's he's a bit older. He's we think he's probably in his late teens. He is utterly dissolute and um, like a very clearly like bad coded character. You know, he's he's, yes. he's clearly villainous. Um, the only really unambiguously bad character I think we've encountered yeah. so far. And we learn that after his family moved to the capital, he discovered the existence of this school and the existence of lots of uh, young teenage boys and um, his old enthusiasm for Lord Longyang's vice was reawakened, and that you know that does match quite closely what's in the in the Chinese original. Longyang is a was the lover of one of the, I think it was the King of Wei in the in the Ex- Warring yeah. States period or the Spring and Autumn period. I forget. Exactly. That's correct. Yeah, um, I believe Warring States. Yeah, um, and he was, I think his story is that he was upset because. He was worried that the king would find other men more beautiful than him, and I think in in return the king made him a lord to show the strength of his uh, his love for him. Right. So he's sometimes referred to as uh, Longyang Jun, Jun as in lord. Or, oh, got it, got it. Yeah, yeah. Or ruler, uh, and and the king the king would be Wang Wei. Yes, Wang. exactly, exactly. And so Longyang is a is a kind of catchall. It's a kind of metonymy, or it's a synecdoche. I'm not sure exactly, but it's essentially like the it's the the stand-in for homosexuality. So he, this one individual, is a euphemism for uh, homosexual men generally. And, and so here we're going to really have to start to talk about the different reception of homosexuality in traditional Chinese culture from that in traditional, I guess let's say western christian culture yeah uh, and i mean like it's i guess it's worth pointing out ahead of time that you know it, the the latter we shouldn't always observe we shouldn't always perceive as being uh uh constant necessarily so i mean you know True. in in yeah. in, in pre christian civilizations in the west you know most notably ancient parts of ancient greece anyway uh homosexuality mm-hmm. was very common and was not in, in any way well, I mean, like the perception of it, I think, was just extremely different to how it is today. I know that uh, in some mm-hmm. parts of ancient Greece, for example, uh, love between two men was considered in some way like a higher, a more ethical love than that between. Right. Uh, yeah. If you go back to like Plato's Symposium, you'll find uh, material supporting that thesis. Uh, you know, and of course, you know, the, the term lesbian in English comes from the island of Lesbos. Which was in ancient Greece, mm-hmm. which was uh, famously the home of Sappho, I think she was called, uh, who's one of the most uh, famous lesbians right. of antiquity. Mm-hmm. So, y- yes, I, I completely agree with what you're driving at, which is that certainly in in much of the kind of 
Christian European tradition and its successes in other parts of the world, there is a strong, even kind of vitriolic um, dislike for homosexuality. Um, and we've seen uh, a lot of these dynamics back in chapter four when Shrepan was first uh, introduced. And kind of the impression we got there, which I, I think is being reiterated here, is that while, I guess the way to say it would be, while homosexuality isn't accepted per se, the reaction to it isn't nearly as severe as in maybe a Western Christian context. Yeah, you're right. It's, it's, it doesn't seem to be depicted as uh, sinful or deserving in some way of contempt, I suppose. But at the same time, it's not held on the same level as uh, heterosexual relationships, I suppose. Although what we do see here that is familiar maybe to a Western context is the association between homosexuality and shame, humiliation, and, and ridicule, right? Especially in this uh, you know, schoolboy context. But whereas maybe in an English boarding school, it's mostly innuendo. Here, I mean, I want to really just read the, the quotation here because it's pretty shocking yeah. uh, what's, what's really going on here. So when Shripan learned sometime after moving into his aunt's place in the capital that the establishment included a clan school plentifully stocked with young males of a certain age, his old enthusiasm for Lord Longyang's vice was reawakened and he had hastened to register himself as a pupil. His school going was, needless to say, a pretense. One day fishing and two days to dry the nets, as they say. And that's the that's a direct translation of the original. And had nothing to do with the advancement of learning. Having paid a generous fee to the teacher, Jadairu, he used his membership of the school merely as a means for picking up quote-unquote soulmates from among his fellow students. It must with regret be recorded that a surprisingly large number of the latter were deluded into becoming his willing victims by the prospect of receiving those ample advances of money and goods which he was in a position to offer. Yeah. And so you cannot imagine a more corrupt uh, arrangement 